Our world is in trouble. Society is full of noise, darkness, and distraction. Where do you go to find the hope and the strength to cope with such a mess? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Enver Hoxha once said, when the enemy attacks you, it means you are on the right road. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan, and that this podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. We thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, messaging messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what is our topic for today? Well, Rick, our question is, condemned to death, how did Jesus love his enemies? And our theme text is found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Love your enemies. Once you dig down to the deepest meaning of this phrase, it is perhaps one of the most daunting tasks ever put upon anyone. Jesus not only taught us in detail how to love our enemies, he showed us in living color how to profoundly care for them. He literally walked the walk all the way to Calvary. As we look back upon the death and resurrection of Jesus, we will pause and consider his applying the principle of selfless, sacrificial love and then transforming it into a timeless reality. How did Jesus show devotion to those who were devious and hostile, attachment to those who antagonized him, and affection for those who became his adversaries? Those are the questions that we are going to be asking and looking at as we go through our podcast today. And so today, what we want to do is tell the story of Jesus' resurrection largely through the eyes of those who stood against him. What did they see in his character, his teachings, in his actions? What did they do to specifically act against him? What did they walk away with when their experience with Jesus ended? And probably the most important question of all, and this is the one that's for us, the personal question, how can we better apply Jesus' unconditional love for everyone in our day as we try to follow him. Jesus taught us four specific principles. For you wear the fittest crown, and to glory fit. 
So the whole idea, we're setting the table with that verse of that particular song because the message is Jesus has overcome the world. So now, how did that happen? Jesus taught us four specific principles of love. Luke six twenty-seven through 28. But I say unto you, which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. So first, to lay out the overall theme of loving your enemies, we're going to look at one of his enemies, and that was Judas. So this is about, this seg- segment is about loving your enemies, and we're specifically going to be looking at Judas. Judas had become an enemy, a betrayer of Jesus. We may argue that he really did not expect this whole conspiracy thing to unfold. We might say that he knew Jesus had the power to overcome any enemy at any time, for Judas had witnessed Jesus feeding thousands from practically nothing, walking on water, healing all manner of disease. He even saw Jesus control weather and raise Lazarus from the dead. Surely this Jesus could foil the plotting and schemes of the Pharisees. So Judas betrayed him for a bag of money. How could such a thing unfold? His heart was dark as evidenced at the home of Mary and Martha and the newly raised Lazarus just a short time before his betrayal. We go to John chapter 12. There they made him a supper and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the bag, and bare what was put therein. Jesus had taught that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Let's further observe the abundance of the heart of Judas. Matthew 26. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests, and said unto them, What will you give me? and I will deliver him unto you. And they coveted with him for thirty pieces of silver, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. You know, we don't have much dialogue recorded in Scripture from Judas, but the little that we have tells quite a story. What will you give me and I will deliver him to you? Speaks volumes. The only words of Judas to Jesus after this bargaining statement were a simple, is it I? And then... There were the two simple words of betrayal. Jesus also spoke and acted out of the abundance of his heart. So next, let's drop in on Jesus and the twelve in the upper room. Now, Jesus already knows what's going to happen. Jesus already knows who's going to betray him. With this knowledge, Jesus' words and actions unfold in a very clear and unmistakable way. We go to John 13. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. When you stop and look at that picture, it is probably one of the most sensitive and in a way surprising pictures in scripture. You see Jesus so humbly kneeling before his followers. He kneels before them. He gets on the floor in front of them to wash their feet. Out of the abundance of his heart, Jesus acted, and he washed his would-be betrayer's feet along with the other 11. Shortly afterwards, Jesus' words again reflect the abundance of his heart. Back to John 13. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss of know which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. He, leaning back, thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Then Jesus answered, This is the one from whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. You see, the words of Jesus did not betray the betrayer. No, instead, Jesus fed him. You see, Jesus loved his enemies. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. The words of Jesus did not beg or plead for reconsideration. He did not stare Judas down or stand in his way. No, Jesus allowed Judas to follow that which Judas had already decided to follow. Next, we find ourselves in the garden. Jesus had just finished praying his nevertheless prayer, and he perceives that his time of suffering was about to begin. He warns his followers. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The abundance of Jesus' heart had room, not only to, uh, had room to not only warn those who followed, it also had room to warn he who would betray. You see, love your enemies. We continue. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. Immediately Judas went to Jesus to kiss him and said, Hail, Rabbi! But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? This is Jesus' final warning to Judas. 
Judas, do you betray me by showing your friendship? Really? Love your enemies. And Judas kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Love your enemies. Jesus began his walk toward Calvary by doing this very thing. He loved his enemies, and it was clearly, clearly expressed in the way he dealt with the interchanges with Judas. When I think about the road traveled by my Savior's feet, when I think about the cross he bore, the pain and suffering, and knowing where the path would lead, he willingly obeyed. He could have caught him I love that. Outrageous love. It wasn't the nails that held him to the tree. It was his outrageous love. So, so Jonathan, as we quickly just look back on the Judas experience, what, what do you think Judas walked away with after all that was said on, and done up to, up to this point in this experience? Well, um, what he walked away with is question number one, yes. Rick? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I believe... Um, because Judas was known to be a zealot. Zealots believed that the Messiah would take the throne by force and defeat Rome uh, and be the king and reign. But Jesus made it clear um, in a statement for Jesus' ears, put up your sword again into its place for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus was teaching that this is not how I will begin my kingdom. Then later, Judas felt remorse by saying, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. So uh, he had a hard lesson to learn. So he was, and I think you nailed it down, he was trying to bring the kingdom his own way. Exactly, selfishly. Right, and and it was very, very selfishly. He did it and tried to make money in the process. So what can we learn from the bad judgment of Judas and his teaching uh, and and the teaching and patience of Jesus? Well, we don't want to push God's agenda. We Mm -hmm. want to be patient and wait on him. And for Jesus, what a savior, what love and self-control. He called Judas friend even when he was betraying him. Wow. Love your enemies. The Judas betrayal had to be heartbreaking for Jesus. Can you even imagine? No, not really. But he sure showed us what to do. With loving our enemies in mind, how did Jesus show devotion to those who were devious and hostile? We're excited to be hearing from our growing listening audience at ChristianQuestions.com through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also chat with us now during the live broadcast. You know what would be really awesome? If you can leave us a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It helps us reach even more people. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing. Now, let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. 
Paying close attention to the example Jesus set at this time in his ministry will yield profound lessons in the highest form of what a Christian character actually can look like. His steady yet powerful approach to the tumult that surrounded him teaches us not only what loving our enemies looks like, it teaches us how to love our enemies. And that's really the key, how to do that which Jesus showed us to do. How did Jesus show devotion to those who were devious and hostile? In Luke 6, But I say unto you, which hear, one, love your enemies, two, do good to them which hate you, three, bless them that curse you, and four, pray for them which despitefully use you. Now, we quoted that scripture last segment, we quoted this segment, and surprise, you're going to hear it next segment, because it's about loving your enemies and how Jesus not only taught us, but showed us how to do that. So you, you broke it down into four pieces, Jonathan. The fourth point is pray for them which despitefully use you. And let's focus on that for this particular segment. So now in this segment, let's take a look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests. All of them hated Jesus. For this one man, Jesus, would change their preferred world unless they could stop him. And they certainly put the effort out. So we're going to be touching on some descriptions of Jesus, and we're going to be quoting from our friend and brother Tom Ruggiero, who was with us last year in a, in a podcast, How Were Politics Part of Jesus' Crucifixion? So Jonathan, in regards to the Pharisees, who were the Pharisees? Pharisee means separated ones. In their conceit, they separated themselves from the Gentiles and other Jews who were not keeping the rituals of the law as they were. They had the oral law of traditions they created because they said there was not enough detail in the Mosaic law. Okay, so the law wasn't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they had to make it better, more clear, so to speak. So for most of Jesus' ministry, it was the Pharisees who hounded him. Jesus consistently responded to their questions and traps with sound, law-based reasoning that they could not refute. Love your enemies. Jesus loved them by showing them the law and fulfilling the true meaning of the law. So that was the Pharisees. Jonathan, what about the chief priests? Well, the chief priests, the Romans, would not allow the Jews to appoint their own high priest so they appointed who they thought would be more subservient to Rome. Because Annas was a very strong-willed and dominant man, the Romans took him out and said, we will replace you with Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law and more able to be controlled. Even though Caiaphas was the official high priest, Annas, because of his dominant personality, was still the key figure. He was still the chief and Caiaphas was under him. So in this circumstance, you had the high priest and then you had the other high priest who wasn't really the high priest, but was the high priest. And so there's this whole power thing going on. Uh, and again, you look at that in relation to Jewish law and you say, wait, wait, that doesn't fit. But that's the way they did it. The chief priests and the scribes, the scribes were learned men capable of teaching the law, were also deeply dissatisfied with the power and teaching of Jesus. And yet Jesus loved those who despitefully used him by not stopping the good news. And a great example of that is in Matthew chapter 21, verses 14 and 15. This is after Jesus had cleared the temple. 
And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that had been done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. Indignant at the goodness of the miracles. It's an amazing thing to think about. So we have a description of the Pharisees and the chief priests. Jonathan, what about the Sadducees? Well, Sadducee probably comes from the term House of Zadok which was a high priest during the reign of David and Solomon when the first temple was built. You could not be a priest if you were not in that lineage. They became disinterested in the temple and the law because they were affected by Greek philosophy. They were into the politics and running of the state. So here's the thing. The Pharisees hated the political bent of the Sadducees. And these two groups were always at odds. They were always butting heads. The Sadducees showed up at the beginning of Jesus' ministry to see what the spectacle was all about, but they stayed relatively uninvolved until much later in Jesus' ministry. When they came back around, Jesus dealt with them plainly. And that's what we can find in Matthew 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. After discussing their ability to read the weather, Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So you see, they showed back up, and Jesus addressed the issue. He loved those who despitefully used him by unapologetically standing against the ungodly things they stood for. He stood against it. He told them exactly what was what. As his ministry progressed, Jesus presented an irresolvable problem for any of these groups listed that we just talked about. And so these groups decided to do the unthinkable. They decided to join forces against Jesus. Jesus in their minds, was perceived as a bigger enemy than they had ever perceived each other to be. And the Pharisees even involved their Herodians. Now, Jonathan, who are they? The Herodians were primarily a political body attached to the house of Herod. They were members of the royal court of Herod. And by being in the royal court of Herod, they represented the interests of Rome. So a very political group that the Pharisees dragged in. Now remember, the Pharisees didn't like the Sadducees who were political. So you can see the hypocrisy all over this thing. Let's go to Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? This is really an ingenious evil because they were trying to portray an honest dispute between themselves and the Herodians. They saw this as a no-win question for Jesus. Matthew 22, But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, 
Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. They had no answer to their unsolvable question for Jesus. He stumped them by pure, simple logic. You see, Jesus loved those who despitefully used him by pointing them upwards, for they were all lost and all leaderless. The Sadducees came up with their own attack to discredit Jesus and the resurrection doctrine on that very same day. Back to Matthew 22. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Again, Jesus loved those who despitefully used him by again answering in a way that let them know just how little they knew. He told them what the kingdom would look like, and they had no recourse. They also had no answer, and they also walked away bewildered. So, looking at these experiences, Jesus loved those who despised him. As their hatred toward him grew, his love toward them also grew. It now came down to their final frenzied attack to condemn him to death. We jump to Matthew 26. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. False witnesses. You see, Jesus loved those who despitefully used him by letting their anger play out. I mean, how do you condemn someone who has done no wrong? Let's continue with Matthew 26. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you have no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Jesus' silence was deafening. They had nothing and could fabricate nothing. Their whole plan was teetering on the edge of disaster. See, Jesus loved those who despitefully used him by allowing this moment of clarity to shine before them. They would have no recourse, no answer, no way to make their plan work unless Jesus himself gave it to them. Let's continue in Matthew. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat on his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who was the one who hit you? Jesus loved those who despitefully used him. 
by answering more than they asked for. There were no charges. So his revealing answer opened the door to the false charge of blasphemy. This was the very thing he prayed in the garden about that he did not want to bear. Perhaps it was here in this moment that Jesus saw the heart-wrenching but blessed answer to that garden prayer and to its nevertheless ending. So when, when, when we look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the Hodian, Herodians, Jonathan, what, what could all of these religious leaders have walked away with? A lot of rage, Rick, <laughs> a lot of hate, but satisfaction in abusing Jesus because he was their threat. Right. And so they, all they saw was red, the red of their own rage, and that's what they held on to. They couldn't see beyond it. They couldn't see the goodness and the miracles and the godliness. What can we learn from Jesus' love for those who despitefully used him? Rick, submission to the Father's will, being willing to take the abuse. And the word ignominy means disgrace. Jesus lived with grace, the complete opposite, but he bore it anyway. So he bore disgrace through grace. Exactly. We want to touch on Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, and you know we're only touching on it here, and folks, we really encourage you to read it and meditate on this chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then verse 3 right now in this segment. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So one of the things that jumps out at me out of those first two verses is growing up as this tender shoot out of a parched ground. Israel, at the time Jesus came, was a parched ground. There was very little life in Israel. And this tender shoot grew up to redeem them, to, to, to take on their sins and the difficulties of that generation. And what happened? 
Let's look at verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. So he grows into this environment to be the Savior, and he's despised and forsaken, sorrowful, acquainted with grief. He was looked upon as one that people just would look away from, and he was not esteemed the Son of God. You think about it, the fortitude that Jesus displayed by standing alone against so many enemies is amazing. It is, and it proves Jesus truly loved his enemies. How did Jesus show attachment to those who antagonized him? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. You know, to be attached to someone usually implies some kind of positive experience that binds two parties together. For Jesus, at the end of his earthly life, the experience he had with the public could hardly be categorized as such. In spite of those he died for mercilessly antagonizing him, Jesus remained firm in his attachment. He loved them too much to let them go. Let me say that again. He loved them too much to let them go. Now let's focus on Jesus' attachment to Pilate and to the people who would shout for his death. Luke 6. 27 through 28. But I say unto you which hear, 1. Love your enemies. 2. Do good to them which hate you. 3. Bless them that curse you. And 4. Pray for them which despitefully use you. And Rick, let's focus on point 3. Bless them that curse you. So we're really going to be looking into uh, Pilate and the people in this particular segment. The hatred of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and priests was actually just getting warmed up. Getting Jesus to the point of passing him to Pilate was an accomplishment of sorts, but to finish their grisly crime, they would have to remain not only vigilant in their anger, they would need to make their anger contagious. They approached Pilate with no firm accusation to present, just a determined anger. Jesus had spoken to them only enough to verify their hypocrisy. He would talk to them no more. He would, however, converse with Pilate, for Pilate was to this point uninvolved and tended to be unbiased. Jesus would show his love for Pilate by respecting his position. We go to John 18. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium, and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. 
but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So Jesus spoke spiritual truth to a man who had no spiritual mind. Yet what Jesus said was the best, most honest answer he could give, for he was telling Pilate that he was actually resigned to the torturous presence to be able to bring a glorious future. Back to John 18. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate again addresses the mob of Jewish leadership with honesty. He has heard the grace of Jesus' words and felt the honesty of their message. He would now lobby for his release, for Jesus was innocent, and he knew it. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate would now have Jesus whipped, perhaps to draw sympathy from those so mercilessly accusing him. It's so sad to realize that an attempt to draw sympathy from a group of heady and merciless accusers comes at the expense of a man who is humble and righteous in background. Such a contrast in leaders. We have Pilate trying to strike a deal for an innocent man's life rather than just insisting on it, as was his right. And then we have the Jewish leadership blindly and foolishly calling to save the life of a thief over a man they knew to be innocent. And then we have Jesus, already beaten and bloody, yet honestly and calmly stating his coming lordship over all as he acquiesced to further torture and further ignominy. You see, Jesus lived his love for his enemies, blessing those who curse. Pilate would come out again and famously say, Behold the man. His proclamation would be met with what would grow to be a deafening chant, Crucify him! Crucify him! We read in John 19, 8-15, Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to Pilate, I know who you think you think you are, but who you really are is a small and sinful man before God, and it is he who looks down upon you and your actions. So Jesus puts Pilate's authority 
in place with grace and yet with force. He says, sure, you do have authority, but that authority is only in your hands because God Almighty has allowed it to be so. Don't ever forget your smallness and God's greatness. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king! So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate again tries to find a way to release the innocent man. This time by lauding Jesus as their king as if to say, Here, have this man as your leader. He's good. He's innocent of any crimes. Take him. Take him. He's an innocent, good man. Pilate is trying to work within a very small area, but he just doesn't have the strength to step outside of that small little area because he's faced with something very powerful. Matthew 27. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release from you for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him! Mob violence always begins with an instigator. In this case, there were many who prodded and riled the crowd into a frenzy of mindless shouting and fury. The simple and vital question of furnishing the proof of wrongdoing was overwhelmed in a sea of clamor and hatred. Jesus stood before and gazed upon these restless masses. He was bound, he was bloodied, and he was dressed mockingly as a king and he wore a crown of thorns. And he looked out upon the crowd that shouted, crucify him. And Jesus loved them and blessed those who cursed him, all of them. He absorbed their vitriol and cursing as this is what he had come here to do. He would save them, all of them. Matthew 27. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But having scourged Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. So he... He releases Barabbas and he scourges Jesus again. 
Pilate gave in to the raucous crowd, and in so doing, he sentenced innocence to death. It's hard to say why he had Jesus whipped again. The bottom line was that he added physical injury to the insults of being sentenced to death by crucifixion with no evidence. Death. Death by crucifixion. Wasn't that torturous enough? Apparently it was not enough for the insatiable appetites of this crowd gone mad. Through it all, Jesus accepted the pain, suffering, and injustice, and Jesus continued to love them in spite of it. Overcoming power, Jonathan. Here is it, to me. It is startling in it, in it, in 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 how how comprehensive it is in in this particular circumstance before Pilate and the people. It is startling. Pilate and the crowd. What did they see, and why didn't they act on it, Jonathan? What do you, what do you think? Well, Rick, they saw innocence, but that didn't stop them from that mob mentality and frenzy. They just let it get out of hand and go down the wrong road. And and that's the point. They let it get out of hand. They didn't make the choice to get in their own way because what they saw and what they were doing were completely opposite from one another. What can we learn from how Jesus blessed them that cursed him? Well, Jesus was willing to die for them in spite of their evil and hatred. We need to love our enemies as well. And that's the thing. We need to follow in those footsteps. We're never going to be able to do it the way Jesus did, but to follow in those footsteps, to say, let's, let's look upon this experience and say, I want to be that like that when I grow up. Back to Isaiah chapter 53. Let's go to verses 4 through 6. We'll take them one at a time. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And doesn't that give you a sense, the last few lines of that give you a sense of the crowd. They esteemed him stricken of God. They esteemed him afflicted. But from Jesus' eyes looking upon the crowd, he himself bore their sorrows. And, and, and he carried their griefs. And yet they esteemed him stricken. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So the several times he was scourged by Pilate's order, right there, you can look at that as a direct fulfillment of the prophecy here. By his scourging, we are healed. He's crushed because of our sins. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. He voluntarily took it upon himself. He loved his enemies. And verse 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Every one of us, we can look upon that, that experience and say, oh, shame on them. But this scripture tells us every one of us has gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. The iniquity of all of us, by God's grace, fell upon him, and his shoulders were broad enough and strong enough, and his will was perfect enough to bear it all. It is amazing to me that everywhere Jesus turned, there was always more hatred. That's what made his example so inspiring. Jesus' love overcame Judas, Israel's spiritual leaders, Pilate, and the people. What about the Roman soldiers? Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. The fact is, most of the soldiers in the service of Rome basically hated the Jews. To them, Israel was a nuisance, a little country of religious zealots who had come had to be forcefully kept subservient to Roman rule. Torture and crucifixion were handy, and I'm sorry to say even entertaining tools for them to use to keep the peace. Peace through intimidation. That was something Jesus came to put an end to. So how did he show affection for those who hated him? Well, in this next segment, we're going to be looking at Jesus dealing with others who were standing well against him. But first, let's take a moment and listen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but 
we will look at Jesus' affection for those who dripped hatred towards him. Luke 6, 27-28 But I say unto you which hear, 1. Love your enemies. 2. Do good to them which hate you. 3. Bless them that curse you. And 4. Pray for them which despitefully use you. And so let's focus on that second point. Do good to them which hate you. And as we do that, let's just backpedal for a moment. One dramatic example of Jesus literally fulfilling this aspect of loving his enemies was in the garden when Judas betrayed him. So we're going to go back to that event from a different perspective. So we're going to start with John 18, we're going to go verses 2 through 11. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Judas leads the religious leaders and Roman soldiers to capture Jesus. And Jesus, knowing full well their intentions, does not just go along. Instead, he asks them whom they seek. Why? Why would he ask? They need to say it. They need to be voluntarily and fully committed to their sinful choices. Let's continue. They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way, to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Perhaps another reason Jesus made them ask was to exhibit God's ability to crush this illegal and immoral action. They were literally blown over at the power of Jesus' acknowledgement of his identity. God could have destroyed every last one of them in the same manner that Elijah called down fire upon the soldiers of Ahab, but he didn't. Why? Because Jesus needed to evidence his love for them, and that could only be revealed if they were allowed to continue. You see, do good to them which hate you. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. And he touched Malchus' ear and healed him. Do good to them which hate you. What better example could there be of practicing what you preach than what Jesus did here? He not only healed the injured man, he commanded 
that all violence in this matter be halted immediately. Think about it. Jesus protected everyone else from violence throughout his whole night of trial except for himself. It's just another proof of how he loved his enemies, how he did good to those who hated him with selfless and sacrificial love. Jesus continued to teach. Even in the midst of the power of darkness taking hold, he continued to teach. Jesus said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scripture be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? So his lessons were simple. They were powerful. It's simple. You have no power unless God permits your evil. And that permission is for the sole purpose of your eternal welfare. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The tumult of this experience left Jesus entirely alone to face the evil that was coming. He provided his disciples a way out, and they took it as they ran in fear. Jesus would now face the darkness of Satan's devious designs by himself. The best man would win. Jesus would win. His love would outshine all evil for all time. But the road to that victory would be filled with pain and cost him his very life. That road to victory passed directly through Calvary. Along the way to Calvary, the ignominy and torment only increased. We already dropped in on Jesus' interactions with Pilate, but let's go back to that time once more and look in on the treatment Jesus received from the Roman soldiers. We're going to focus now on the Roman soldiers before he went to Pilate. So we're back to John chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. These few verses give us a deep and troubling insight into the Roman rule and therefore the mindset of those who upheld it, the everyday soldier. These men were the enforcement army of a harsh and immovable law. In contrast to the Jewish law, Roman law permitted a kind of slavery that was grandfather to the oppressive slavery in early America. In Rome, if one slave disobeyed or gave the master of the house a reason for suspicion, all household slaves could be executed. The Romans saw the Jews as little more than those slaves. So their toying with the very real human lives of Jews 
was common. It was sport to not only crucify, but to crucify with creativity, to, to torture for fun, and to harass and abuse simply because you could. Such was the attitude of the men into whose hands the life of Jesus was placed. We now go to the cross. We now go to the final six-hour piece of this drama in which Jesus repeatedly and faithfully healed when he was abused, loved when he was hated, and cared when he was shunned. The cross would be the final spectacle, and it would be the final stop on his road to the light and salvation of victory. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. And the soldiers also mocking him, come to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. So you have all of this going on. How does Jesus react to the crowds, to the soldiers? How does he handle the shame of his physical exposure and the constant pounding of the people's unbridled disgust and insult? The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter actually tells us what he did. 1 Peter chapter 2. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So Jesus reacted to the crowds and the soldiers with silence. He did not beg them for mercy. He did not lash out at them or belittle them or appeal to them in any way. The things he was being accused of were false, and those revilers who passed by did so with insult on their tongues, and they did so with malice in their hearts. Jesus saw them, heard them, and he loved them. He did good to those who hated him, for they themselves were the prize that his death would ultimately win. Two.
So you have all that experience with the soldiers and the people, but you know, after Jesus died and the earthquake happened and so forth, there are some of the soldiers that sort of come around. In Matthew 27, 54, it says the centurion and those who were with him kept guard over Jesus. And when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So the power of the events did get to some of those people who were so calloused and so angry and so evil at that time. So, Jonathan, as we look at this, what, what can we learn from the example of mob mentality that the people so easily displayed? Well, Rick, things can go bad real fast, and mistakes will be made. We have to be on the alert to make sure that we don't ever, ever get involved in that kind of thing. How do we get closer to doing good to those who hate us the way Jesus did? WWJD, what would Jesus do? How can I honor God? The servant is not above his master. We will be hated, but let's hope we can act like Jesus did. Absolutely. Let's just focus on the example that we're looking at in today's podcast. Let's go back to Isaiah 53 for just a moment. Isaiah 53, verses 7, 8, and 9. Let's do verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to a slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And we saw that plainly in the example on the cross. He just absorbed the difficulty. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. So he, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It was oppression. It was oppressive judgment. But that's what was required to fulfill the ransom. And verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So he's crucified with thieves. And yet remember Joseph of Arimathea came forward and gave him that unused tomb and Joseph was a rich man. So the prophecies are wonderfully fulfilled. And the the best part of those verses is there was no deceit in his mouth. He perfectly loved his enemies and bore the burdens before him. It really takes your breath away as we see what Jesus had to face. It does, and there's a grand conclusion. Thus far, we have seen Jesus love his enemies through his experiences. Where did that love take him? A little technical difficulty there with that bumper. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together. We began this conversation by stating that Jesus walked the walk of loving his enemies. As we have seen, his love was true, complete, and profound because he was so far above and beyond reproach the end result of his love would be his resurrection. This would prove to be the linchpin 
of the entire plan of God for all mankind. This resurrection would prove to be the thing that changed everything. So as we are focusing on the love of Jesus, it wasn't the nails that held him to the tree. It was his love for his enemies, for all mankind. That's what held him there. Nothing more, nothing less. So where does all of that bring us? You see, there are a myriad of prophecies that speak of worldwide restitution, worldwide peace, and harmony. These are the real story of the cross. These are the real story of Jesus' love for his enemies. And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. You see, because he is risen, there is a very specific context being set out here in this prophecy of Daniel. In this context, we have those kings. What kings? The kings of the earth. We have the God of heaven setting up an indestructible kingdom that breaks down the previous kingdoms in pieces where it is here on earth. You see, because of it, he is risen, these prophecies have the ability to unfold and come true. Think about how much sense this makes. Jesus died for Adam and therefore for us. And that means he came to restore what was lost. What was lost? Perfect life on a perfect earth. We go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God has pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. You see, it's because he is risen, the blood of his cross. And let's look at the elements in the Colossian scripture. We have Jesus in the church. It says he is the head of the body of the church, who are his called out ones. Then it says that God, through Jesus and his sacrifice, reconciled and made peace with all things. See, it says all things. This is much more than the true church. The blood of the cross is about much more than me. Jonathan's about much more than you. It's about us, all of us. Jesus loved his enemies. It's about all of mankind. 
Acts 3, 20 and 21. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So God through Jesus, now the risen Lord, is not only reconciling all things to himself, he's restoring all things. When you restore something, you return it to its former state. Peter here in Acts says that the prophets spoke of this restoration. Okay, well if they spoke of it, what did they say? Let's look at just a few of the many, many prophecies that paint the picture of earthly restoration that comes because Jesus was faithful, died, and was raised. Isaiah 51, 3. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. What a beautiful picture. The perfection of Eden was lost, and Isaiah is saying in this prophecy that the waste places of earth will look like it. You see, redemption brings restitution, and restitution brings gladness, thanksgiving, and song. How do we know that? We know because the prophecies tell us. This is a result of Jesus loving his enemies. Let's go to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. But in the last day it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come! And let us go up unto the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. These are specifics about the future of earth. There will be many nations. They will all be seeking after God, which indicates that they must go through a learning curve. They will walk in godly paths with restored and newly faithful nation of Israel leading them as their example. Make no mistake, Israel will be the earthly example to the world. That is where it will all come from. Back to Micah. And he shall judge people among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. God will teach the world the ways of peace. Swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, no more war. You know, we had the example of Rome that ruled peacefully by oppression. 
This is rule through, through justice and righteousness and mercy and love. No more war. Rather, they will all dwell in peace, each with the ability to provide for themselves, all the while living under the hand of God. This is the direct result of the sacrifices of the cross, the ransom payment for Adam and his sin. This is the way God intended the world to be. So while those now faithful to Jesus will have an inheritance in heaven, there is that heavenly call. The everybody else will have an inheritance on earth once they prove their faithfulness to Jesus in Judgment Day. Praise be to God for his unspeakable gift. Thanks be to Jesus for loving his enemies. Rick, no wonder the scripture says in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, and Jonathan, let's just take a minute and, and look back. We, we, we talked about Jesus loving Judas in the midst of betrayal and the, the strength of character it took for him to do that. We talked about managing the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the pre chief priests and, and, and the, even the Herodians and, and the character it took to do that. We talked about him before Pilate and, and the conversation and the character it took to do that. We talked about him before the people screaming for his crucifixion. And he looked at them and he loved them. We talked about the Roman soldiers who just wanted to make him hurt because they could. And he loved them. What a comprehensive picture these prophecies bring us of the simple yet profound work of Jesus. Adam sinned, therefore we all sin, and justice required satisfaction. Jesus came, lived perfectly, gave that life up, and therefore satisfied justice. Now he reigns on high, and all of the world under the curse of Adam will be given a new lease on life. Why? Because that's what justice demands. And that's what loving your enemies brings. And that's the example that we are focusing on, that Jesus lived. Let's go to another prophecy, Jonathan. This time, let's go to Isaiah chapter 65. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent its food shall be dust. 
They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So you look at that picture and you say, okay, is there anything wrong with this picture anywhere? No. (laughs) It's perfect. It's all in place. How does it get to be all in place? Well, remember, in the garden, it was all in place. It was all in place to begin with. It got out of place. God overruled the getting out of place. And that's why Jesus had to come as a sacrifice and a ransom for Adam and therefore for us. He takes all that was out of place and graciously, lovingly, firmly, and justly, and in a godly way, put it back in place. This is yet another example of a clear picture of an amazing earthly setting that you read about in Isaiah. I mean, it really gives you a sense of of, of people just flourishing, just working the land, being part of a society that's harmonious and flourishing, building houses, planting vineyards, personal responsibility, no labor in vain, the Almighty guiding and directing the affairs over all of the earth, the wolf and the lamb feeding together, just like the garden. Yep, the sacrifice of Jesus and his love for his enemies. That's what bought this particular future. It was the sacrifice of Jesus and his love for his enemies. Every high thing must come down. Jesus is overcome. And so, Jonathan, it's a matter of time before all of that transition is going to take place. Let's finish up, going back to Isaiah chapter 53, the last three verses, verses 10, 11, and 12. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So in that one verse, it says two things that just don't even seem like they could possibly belong together. It says the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And you think, wait a minute, 
God is pleased to crush Jesus. Does that sound right? It, to it you? doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> but then, but then you you read the last the last line and the good, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. So there's good that comes from that, and so we understand that God was. It says God was pleased to crush him. What that means is God was pleased to get His plan to be fulfilled. He was pleased in the satisfaction of justice. He was pleased in the offering so that the, his creation would get back to what it was intended to be. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Not a lot, the many. That means all come to that sense, that, that, that arrival of being justified by the, by the incredible sacrifice of Jesus. And finally, Jonathan, verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So he was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sins of the many, he poured himself out to death, and that was how he interceded. And in our walk today, in this podcast, through some of the experience of Je- experiences of Jesus with those who were his enemies, we saw him bear the burden of those that hated him. We saw him love in the face of turmoil, in the face of threat, in the face of torment and torture and ignominy. What an incredible example. You know, people, people call Sunday Easter. It's too bad they use that word. Yeah. Because, but it's Resurrection Sunday. And, right. you know, we look at it as that for a reason. Because it is the resurrection of Jesus, which means the redemption of the world. The price has already been paid. It's just a matter for the package to fully be delivered. Jesus did it. He did it by loving his enemies. And folks, let's take his example and love our enemies. Let's walk in his footsteps and learn to love even when we might be hated. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we've really enjoyed being with you today. We'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, think about the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of loving your enemies. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. Let's let us know what you thought about today's topic. Suggest future topics. Start a conversation with us. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us, review us. We greatly appreciate it. And coming up next week, we'll be talking about. Am I a double-minded Christian? Am I a double-minded Christian? So we look forward to talking to you next week. But again, one last time, Jesus walked the walk all the way to Calvary, and he loved his enemies. You do the same. Till next week.